0: Welcome to the teaching portion of Anthem Online. My name is Bert Alcorn. I'm the lead pastor here of Anthem Church in Ventura. So delighted that you are with us. Hey, if you have your Bible which you should, because you're at home, uh, go grab your Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter nine, Daniel chapter nine. Today, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter nine, and this is actually our, our second to last week in our study in the book of Daniel. So next week, uh, we're going to be rounding out the entire book. Um, we're going to be looking at the last three chapters because they're all kind of one vision, one dream. And just as you're getting your Bible and turning it to Daniel 9, I want to give you a bit of a preview for where we're heading as a church. Uh, we're going to be spending the bulk of our summer in the book of Proverbs, really understanding how to live wisely in exile. What does wise living look like as followers of Jesus? And at the end of summer, we're going to kick into 1 Peter, which I've said a few different times is kind of the New Testament equivalent to Daniel in some ways, where Daniel is explicitly writing um, to those who are in exile, to those who are not in their ultimate home, and and teaching them how to live and giving these displays of a beautiful obedience and faithfulness. And 1 Peter will do something very similar, intentionally written to Christians who are dispersed who are all around Uh, they're not in Jerusalem anymore they're dispersed Um, and Peter's trying to help remind them of the gospel teach them how to live well and holy while they're in exile and so this has been our, our year in exile as a church. We set out at the beginning of this year to say, hey, we're going to be teaching around these themes of, of exile and how to live well, wisely and holy while we're in exile, a home that is not our home. Now, we planned this out months and months ago. Little did we know we would be in the middle of experiencing a global pandemic with COVID-19 and I think it's actually been really crazy, really beautiful, profound, uh, God-ordained prophetic season that, that he's brought us into, that little did we know when we were trying to understand this idea of how to live well, wisely, and holy in exile, when our entire world is disrupted, when all of our norms have shifted under us, the ground has moved under us, and little do we know the environment that we'd be in today. And so I think this has been so applicable to, to where we are at. And Daniel, in particular, has been all about how to live well, wisely, and holy in exile, under the in the shadow, under the empire—a culturally coercive empire uh, that that believes something very different about the world than we do as followers of Jesus. And so, the story of Daniel has been motivating us towards faithfulness and obedience, um, not 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 only despite exile, but even because of it, in the midst of it, it presents these unique challenges to grow in our faith in God that comfortable living does not. And today we're in this deeply profound moment in the book of Daniel uh, in chapter 9, and we're in this profound moment in Daniel's life And I'm so excited to be taking you where it's going to teach us as a church. So here's, I'm going to tell you where we're going first, because once again, these dreams, these visions, kind of these more apocalyptic or prophetic moments in the book of Daniel can be a little bit confusing to get lost in. And this is where we've been for a couple of weeks. And so I want to once again, just kind of reorient where we are and give you a roadmap for where we're going in Daniel chapter nine. So Daniel chapter nine is all about God revealing some future stuff to Daniel for the purpose of bringing hope and comfort to him. Uh, Next, um, we're going to look at how the Jews that came after Daniel used all of that to try and predict what would happen next and how they kind of totally missed the point and all of their predictions. And then we're going to look at how we too can get caught up in all the wrong things and miss Jesus amidst really good things. And fourthly, we're going to look at the how, the way we don't miss Jesus, is to live a life of constant repentance, humility, dependence, connection to, and awareness of God in our life. So God's revealing all this future stuff to Daniel. The Jews that came after Daniel missed the point because they were so wrapped up in all the kind of the technical details here. We too can get all wrapped up in the wrong things and miss Jesus. And I'm going to share with you from Daniel the way we actually don't miss Jesus and get caught up in all the wrong things. That's our roadmap for today. So head over to Daniel chapter nine. We're going to start in verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, which sounds like a dinosaur to me, by a descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. So, pause one moment. I told you guys last week, and the week before, I'll tell you this again. Daniel's chapter seven through twelve are are not, or Dan, the whole book of Daniel is not really in chronological order. So, Daniel's chapter one through six are narrative; their stories, their historical accounts, and Daniel chapter seven through twelve are prof- prophetic moments, their visions, their dreams. And they all find themselves somewhere in the narrative of Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And so as we're reading the second half of the book, the second half of the book gets plugged in in different parts of Daniel chapters 1 through 6. And so Daniel's chapter 7 and 8, where we've been the last two weeks, are between Daniel's chapter 4 and 5, right around there in this handoff between King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, the fiery furnace guy, Belshazzar is the writing on the wall guy, and Daniel's chapter seven and eight find themselves right in there. Now, where we're at right now, Daniel chapter nine is after Daniel chapter five. And so this is the handoff from King Belshazzar, uh, who's like the last Babylonian king, to Darius or Cyrus, same guy. And this was a a Persian uh, Medo ruler. So this is the empire that took over Babylon. Babylon is Persia or the Persia Medo Empire. They overthrow Babylon. And Cyrus or Darius, once again, same person, is the king here. So Daniel at this point is is in his 80s. This is old man Daniel again and nearing the end of his long and and faithful life here. And he goes on in verse 2. I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so Daniel was studying the books and specifically the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Now, if we remember Jeremiah, that was kind of the precursor to Daniel, where he's writing, Jeremiah's writing to the southern kingdom of Judah saying, you guys are about to go into exile. Here's how to live in exile. And we have those key moments where Jeremiah is instructing the people, you know, build homes, get married, seek the welfare of the city for I know the plans for you, declares the Lord. All of that is in the context of his people going into exile into to Babylon, Daniel's now revisiting that prophecy and going, hold on, these 70 years are almost up. What's going on here? What's going to happen? He's reading these prophetic messages to Israel, and he notes from what we know is chapters 25 and 29 that God had given this kind of 70-year window for the time of exile. And so Daniel's going, the 70 years are almost up. All right, what are we going to be doing here? And so see what happens here in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession saying, "O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commands. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all our people in the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel... To all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and curse and the curse and oath that are written in the laws of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. And yet we have not entreated to the, the favor of the Lord, our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by our truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity And has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. This is quite obviously a prayer of of lament and repentance. It's saying, God, you're righteous. We, your people, are unrighteous. We have messed this up so badly, and we deserve everything we have gotten. That's his repentance. This is this moment where Daniel recognizes everything he and his people have done wrong and recognizing the goodness and righteousness of God to do whatever he pleases, saying we have broken the covenant, you have not, you're faithful, we are not. Now verse 16, look at what Daniel asks of the Lord. O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O oh our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own namesake. O oh Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. It's a beautiful line, not because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy, we can approach you. Oh Lord, hear, oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel reads this prophecy of Jeremiah, and his reaction is to go to the Lord, literally turn his face towards the Lord. It's a whole bodily posture in repentance and prayer, sackcloth and ashes and fasting. This is this is a prophetic season that's about to come to a close, or so Daniel thinks. And he wants to make sure that both he and Israel have appropriately learned their lessons from exile. He does not want to miss what God has been saying through this time of calamity. Now, don't miss what Daniel is up to. God's word drives him to a deep state of focused prayer and fasting, and he is craving whatever God is doing. And he leans on the character of God he says, we have totally messed this up. You've been totally righteous. Now, God, I'm calling on your character and your mercy to hear us, forgive us. Do not delay and to act. Look at verse four again. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, "O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandment. He's reminding them of this This covenant they have between them and his own character. And then he contrasts that with his own situation in verse five We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And for the rest of this prayer, we have this contrast, God, you're holy, you've kept the covenant, you've kept your promise, you've done all the good, we have sinned, we've rebelled, we've acted, and this is the contrast, and it ends in this culmination of asking for mercy, asking for forgiveness, and asking for God to act. And right there is the crux, right there, at the beginning of Daniel 9, this massive gap in character and action between God and His people. He is holy. We are not. He is good and and we are wicked. He makes righteous decisions. We rebel and are idiots. This is the, the contrast we get here in the first part. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this kind of underlying theme throughout the book of Daniel, but we've been talking about repentance a lot over the last 10 or 11 weeks. Now, I'm not saying our situation is just like Daniel's. Because the, the sin of humanity, God sent the coronavirus. It's not what we're talking about here. Like the sins of Israel, God sent them into exile. It's not a direct one-to-one, but I think the, the parallels here are really profound and really interesting for us. Daniel's situation did drive him to prayer and repentance. And so we have to ask, what does our situation drive us to? Does it drive us to prayer and repentance? Does it drive us to recognizing the goodness and character and righteousness of God? Or does it drive us to look inward and take care of ourselves and self-pity and anxiety and depression or whatever? We have been reminded of our fallenness, our broken approach to life, to the pursuit of God and our dependence on the things of this world. Institutions, governments, ways of living have all been humiliated and brought down in this season. And as you look at God's word, does it drive you to repentance? In the same way Daniel looked to the words of Jeremiah and it drove him to prayer and repentance, when you open up something like Daniel chapter 9 or another passage, does it drive you towards prayer and repentance? Does it remind you of your and my brokenness before a holy? God? Does it drive you to turn your face towards the goodness of God? If we don't leave Daniel chapter 9 without seeing a desperate need for this posture in our own lives, then we have missed the point completely. Daniel's not about Sunday school stories. It's not about end times charts. It's about recognizing a good, holy, and righteous God and recognizing our brokenness and fallenness and God's move towards us to receive our obedience and our faithfulness. Daniel is overt in his admission of sin. And then he asks the Lord to hear, forgive, pay attention, and act. He says, don't delay, God. We need your help. We need this to change. We, we don't want to miss your message, but we need this to change. Like, we don't want to miss what God is doing, but please stop the exile. And I think our posture as a church is very similar in this season. Like, God, we don't want to miss what you're trying to do in and through us during this season of coronavirus. But please, let's have this season come to an end. Like, we're praying and we're fasting and we're trusting that God will heal our city, restore our nation, restore our our world, all of creation. We're trusting God's goodness will break through. But also, God, we don't want to miss what you're trying to teach us in the midst of this season. Again, if we miss this, repentance, humility, deep dependence on God, it doesn't really matter what else we do. If we've missed the point of God's word driving us towards himself, nothing we really do matters. This is hugely important. Now in verse 20, there's a response from God and that comes in the form of another angel. So we have Gabriel back on the scene making a second appearance in Daniel. Uh, although this is not really described as a dream or a vision, it's kind of just an appearance, which is really interesting. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Let your imagination go wild with what's happening here. Daniel's speaking, he's praying, sackcloth, ashes, he's fasted, he's turning his face probably towards Jerusalem as a posture of turning his face towards God. He's not in a dream, he's not in a vision, he's just having this sweet prayer moment, confessing sin, calling on the goodness of God, and then an angel flies in, swoops in, He's like, it's not a dream, it's not a vision this time. This is like reality and you're right here in front of me. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding, presumably from God. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision now this is really important the vision or this message that that Gabriel is going to give is a message from god and it went out as daniel entered into a posture of repentance for his own sin and the sin of his people in other words god is responsive and interactive this diligent faithfulness of daniel has opened up yet another opportunity for him to stand in a key moment in history as a prophet for god's People, his faithfulness paved the way for a move of God, and Gabriel tells Daniel, "I've I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved." And and this picture is given to Daniel because of his faithfulness, and it's affected God. God wants to share this message with Daniel as a faithful and beloved son. That is a powerful statement to Daniel's character and faithfulness, and a powerful statement to what our faithfulness would yield in this life. Now, here's the message starting in verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now Daniel chapter 9 gets a lot of attention because it gives the sense of a sequence of events that seem to be theologically important. And the theme of the 70 weeks is is not really unique to Daniel. It was a forgiveness theme and motif that was established for Israel with the year of jubilee, and it's the way that Jesus answered Peter's question about forgiveness, the whole 70 times 7 thing. And so it's it's not a it's less about a specific number and more about this running motif throughout the narrative of scripture. So in other words, God's using this familiar concept to express the time of exile and to bring about forgiveness. In this period of 77s, some of, uh, some of these really incredible things will happen. Uh, like to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to ano- atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place or person. And as we look through that list, when you start to see a sense of this already not yet that we've talked about throughout the book of Matthew. Jesus has put an end to sin and will put an end to sin. He's brought and established an everlasting kingdom and he will bring an everlasting kingdom and righteousness. And it seems to indicate kind of a dual fulfillment thing, again, that Gabriel was saying to Daniel. And this time frame was particularly important for the Jewish people. It's so important that around the time of Jesus Was when many of the Jews were starting to anticipate this anointed one or Messiah or Christ would be coming. And there was like a prophetic electricity in the air, which maybe just gives a little bit of weight and background to some of the heated moments between the Jewish people and Jesus or the Jewish elite and Jesus. There was this electricity in the ear, just waiting, anticipating the fulfillment of this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Continuing on, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant for many with one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come the one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, which is just a great name, the desolator, right? Now, this last bit is relating to what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And that's often viewed as having a few different fulfillments. So you have guys like Antiochus Epiphanes, Rome, and the destruction of Jerusalem that we see in Mark chapter 13, the future of uh, the man of lawlessness or the beast that we see in 2 Thessalonians 1 or Revelations chapter 13. There's a lot of potential things that are going on here. But the picture we get here in Daniel chapter 9 is that there will be one who destroys the city and the sanctuary, that there is vindication for God's people. And after a time of great trial, there will be ultimate victory for God and His people. Now, there are varying interpretations of when this will happen. But what is understood from all believers that read this passage is that it will happen. Meaning that God will bring about His kingdom and His promises to bless, forgive, and restore. He will establish this kingdom everlasting and it will come with an air of difficulty before the promises of Daniel 7, verse 14 is realized that the son of man is given this everlasting dominion, that there will be a time of difficulty for those who follow God. Now, when is this happening? Who's to say? But we can trust God because he has been faithful to keep his promises before. We can trust him because he is faithful. Now, this text tends to shift our eyes towards what's to come. And there are some key elements about the end times that the Bible seems to emphasize that usually discourages charts and timelines and predictions and more encourages our posture as we see, quote, the day drawing near, to to quote the writer of Hebrews. And so some of the, the postures and ways we should be living is this understanding that Jesus is coming again. And that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We see that in Romans chapter 8. And there will be final judgment that will determine eternity, 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us. Ephesians 1 tells us our inheritance is secured through Jesus. Matthew 24 says things will get increasingly difficult as we move towards the return of Jesus. And in Matthew 24 and Philippians 1, we see that our role is the proclamation of the gospel until our death or Jesus's return. These are the important elements that the Bible highlights about, quote, the end times. It's not that we should be counting down the days. It's not that we should be making charts, predicting things, looking at a Mayan calendar or whatever, but that our posture should be Jesus is coming. And in light of his second coming, you and I are to live a certain way. In light of all of that, our hope is ultimately built on the return of Jesus. It has came, he came once and he's coming again. And our urgency is shaped by the return of Jesus because we don't know when that's going to happen. And our posture is marked by the return of Jesus, that we can be confident that we are part of a kingdom that is everlasting. Now, for the Christian, for one who follows Jesus, All of life is seen through this already not yet context that Jesus has come once and he is coming again. And in between those two moments in time, Christians live a certain way. He's come and he's coming again. And that changes everything. So how do we live in light of this? Or in other words, how do we not get caught up in theological technicalities, in distractions that happen in life and not miss Jesus. The Jews missed Jesus. They were super in tune with the scriptures. They were super in tune with Daniel chapter 9. They were counting down the days till the Messiah would come and they still missed him. How do we not do the same? A couple of things here. I'm going to give us four things how we live in light of Jesus' coming return and not miss Jesus in the meantime. First, do not be afraid. This is one of the most repeated commands in scripture is do not be afraid. The visions of Daniel, the the words of Jesus and Paul, the, the vision given to John in the book of Revelation, these are not given to incite fear in the lives of believers. We should not be terrified of the mark of the beast or the Antichrist or whatever. We should not be scared of these things. These are given to us as a picture of hope and comfort to produce like good, solid hope built on Jesus and his work. They give us a picture of God's power and ability to bring all things in human creation and human history to a point of produces his intended outcome. We should not be fearful of these things. These these things should be encouraging hope in us. There There are elements of prophecy or apocalyptic literature that are designed to call people to repentance. God's people, not God's people. There are parts of it that are designed to call us to repentance, This is a good thing, but it doesn't incite fear. It actually invites us into his grace because we know he's at the ready to forgive. So one, do not be afraid. Two, live with urgency and awareness. When the New Testament gives us pictures of the end, it often comes with encouragements like this. Be sober-minded, be alert, be strong in the Lord, make the best use of time, always be prepared, let no one deceive you, stand firm, and so on and so on. Do you see a a theme there that's, that's developing? The calling of scriptures is that those who know and believe that Jesus is Lord should live as though his life changes our life, changes our mindset. We should live with a different mindset than those who don't believe that Jesus is coming back. You can live fully aware of the reality that Jesus is going to return and there will be a moment of judgment. And our role in the here and now is to live with such urgency and awareness of that day of judgment that it shapes our witness. That we should be passionate, quick to share the gospel of Jesus. We should be actively, desperately praying for those in our life who do not know Jesus. With, a, with an urgency and an awareness, an awareness that there will be a day when judgment comes and with an urgency of we don't know when that day is, it should ramp up our evangelical witness. It should start to flex those missional muscles in our life. So do not be afraid, live with urgency and awareness. And third, keep the main thing, the main thing. A pastor once told me, he said, quote, my main thing, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And I love that. It's so good, right? Now I'm guessing God didn't give visions and prophecies to terrify and confuse his people. It was meant to bring hope, to produce confidence. And one of the the key shepherding challenges that Paul gives to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter one was to keep the believer's minds set on Jesus and and to live with a pure heart, and to not get distracted by all these other things that are not as important as Jesus. There's stuff here, even Bible-related stuff, but Paul is still deeply concerned. He goes on and talks about, don't get lost in endless genealogies and and all those other nonsense. Don't get too wrapped up in all these secondary and, and tertiary issues. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't get caught up in all that stuff that isn't the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus and his work. This is why we say we are a gospel-centered church, because everything we think and do flows through the reality of the finished work of Jesus and his pending return. So we keep the main thing, the main thing. The Jews in the first century had calculated the dates of the Messiah and were actively looking and they still missed Jesus because they were all wrapped up in this other thing. They were not paying attention to the Jesus in front of them. They were paying attention to the dates and the timelines and the things on their pages. And my worry for those who follow Jesus in this particular time is to get caught up in all the wrong things. Maybe it's living in anxiety or the what ifs or the predictions about when life will get back to normal, whatever normal looks like after coronavirus. I'm worried that the Christians will get caught up in fighting for our rights and our preferences in a time and a place where self-sacrifice is needed for dying to oneself and taking up one's cross is demanded. And I'm worried that the Christians are going to get all caught up in in being insular and and living off mission. And and so even this is one of my just worries from a leadership strategy standpoint, as we look down the barrel of not really being able to meet in person in a large group gathering for quite some time. And our leadership team is thinking through things like, what does it look like to... Do some house church stuff or to elevate community groups to uh, have people in their homes. And all of those things are, are beautiful and amazing. And I'm excited for some of the things the Lord might be brewing in our church. But I'm also worried all that stuff could breed a lot of like insular living and ignoring or forgetting about mission, about those who are lost in our life. And there's This posture of repentance is what opens the door for us to see Jesus in every area of our life. It was true of Daniel and it was true for the Jews in the time of Jesus and it's true for us today that when we start getting wrapped up in issues that are not really the main thing, a realignment of confession, repentance, of Jesus, help me see you in this moment is sometimes all it needs to keep the main thing, the main thing. More important than trying to figure out when the end times are, or what's going to look like, or when everything will happen, or when we're going to get out of this coronavirus season, or all the other things that are plaguing our mind right now, we need to learn how to live in a posture of repentance and readiness to hear from the Lord, which is the fourth thing here. So don't fear, live with urgency and awareness, keep the main thing the main thing, and fourth, live a lifestyle of repentance and dependence. I love what one uh, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, says about this chapter. And he says, if you want to be Daniel 7 people, you've got to be Daniel 9 people first. And I love that. Daniel 7 is all about the victory of this coming Messiah, the Son of Man. And Daniel 9 is all about repentance and how we've messed up and we need to realign our hearts back to God. And he says, if you want to be Daniel 7 people, living in the victory of Jesus, we have to be Daniel 9 people living in the repentance and dependence that understanding we serve a holy God and a broken people brings about. Meaning if you want to experience the fullness of the everlasting kingdom or life and life to the full, as Jesus said in John 10, the posture of repentance and the willingness to endure and persevere are essential. Now here's the reality. God has a plan. We've seen this all throughout the book of Daniel. Yes, his people are in exile, but that's not the ultimate plan. God has a plan for his people. His plan is to eradicate sin and create an everlasting righteousness. This kingdom of heaven Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. And now our lives center around receiving the gift of Jesus as King and taking that plan to all people everywhere. He is our priority. He is our preeminence. We don't want to miss him by getting caught up in all these other things that don't, do not matter. So what we're going to do is, is we're going to end our time in Daniel chapter 9 by reading a bit of Colossians chapter 1. Because we want to not be afraid. Jesus is victorious. We want to live with urgency and awareness because Jesus is coming again. We want to keep the main thing the main thing because Jesus is the main thing. And we want to live in a posture of repentance and dependence because we know we are broken, we are fallen, we are human. And that requires this posture of humility approaching a holy God with a good plan for us. So we're going to end by reminding ourselves of Jesus and all his beauty and power and glory. Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Jesus, right now, we take a moment to repent of every area in our life that we have not made you the main thing. We repent, we, we often do not repent enough and live in this state and posture of dependence on you. God, we recognize that we often fall into comfort and laziness and apathy and we lose our urgency and awareness and the need for mission and evangelism. And we admit and confess we are so fearful when you tell us we have no reason to be afraid. Jesus, we ask that you would make us into people for whom you are king. And we ask that that reality would shape every part of our lives. We ask your spirit's help because left to our own devices, we will just revert back to being afraid, to being prideful, to ignoring you and to being caught up in all these other things. And so we ask Holy Spirit, that you would help us change to become the kind of people who want to be with you, to become like you, and to do the things you did. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.